0: As we get into this next step, uh, hopefully we're going to see that as a less frightful thing. And it's in step seven that we identify the goals that allow us to combat the impact of my suffering. And as we talk about this, we're not saying these are the things you should have done all along and this never would have happened. That would be to put the burden back on you. What we are saying here, are these are the things that we can do to combat the influence of suffering within our life. Uh, Earl and Sandy Wilson, get us started. Says prolonged pain indicates the degree of the hurt or injury, not the presence or absence of forgiveness. When pain comes to the surface, it reveals how severe the result of sins are. It does not mean that forgiveness has not occurred. Pain and forgiveness are different yet interrelated. Pain can continue after forgiveness. Again, I want you to hear two sets of questions in the direction that they take us. When does the pain stop? What will stop the pain? Those questions center our attention on our pain. And they just create a sense of defeat and despair. Out of the last section, hopefully if we begin to ask, where is God active and how can I cooperate? Again, God may not be actively changing my spouse's heart right now. And so cooperation may or may not be with them. But where is God active and how can I cooperate? These questions center our attention on our hope and give us purpose. Now, here we get into that subject of forgiveness. And I'll clarify a few things that forgiveness are not, particularly in light of this subject. Forgiveness is not containing or restraining hurt or anger. Again, forgiveness is not this game that we play where we no longer express hurt. Forgiveness is what allows us to express hurt as hurt instead of hurt as anger. Forgiveness is not letting somebody off the hook. Forgiveness is the start of the restoration process, not the culmination. It is agreeing to begin, not declaring that I finish. Um, Forgiveness is not an excuse. I think this one is huge. Uh, Forgiveness does not reclassify the offense from a sin to a mistake. Mistakes are excused. Sins are forgiven. Oftentimes, it's this perceived downgrade because we confuse forgiveness and excusing. Saying, I forgive you, and saying that's okay. Because we confuse those, that's why we resist forgiving. But when we forgive, we are classifying the offense at its top level. We are saying it ranks at the level where nothing short of forgiveness will rectify what has occurred. And forgiveness is not forgetting or some kind of sentimental amnesia. Forgiveness does not require a rush of warm emotions for your spouse that are consistently stronger and longer than the hurt or pain that you may feel. As if somehow I only know when I've forgiven when the wave of emotions are more in the direction that I want them to go instead of where I don't want them to go. So, in light of that, what is forgiveness? Uh, forgiveness is a choice to no longer require someone to receive the punishment that their sins deserve. Again, there are certain things that are not punishment, uh, certain aspects of changes that need to be made have nothing to do with punishment, they're just the pursuit of healthy. But forgiveness is a choice to no longer require someone to receive the punishment that their sins deserve. Forgiveness is an act of faith that trusts that the penalty for sin was sufficiently paid by Christ on the cross or will be paid by the sinner in hell. Forgiveness is a willingness to treat the offender as gracious wisdom would allow given the offender's current response to their sin. Again, gracious wisdom. Not trying to act as if things were better than they were. um, But at the same time, extending the grace that allows us to do what wisdom would warrant in this circumstance. And forgiveness is the intersection of the supernatural and interpersonal. Forgiveness is not something I can do on my own. Forgiveness is not something that I have to muster up. Forgiveness is something that required Christ on the cross. And when I forgive, I am echoing by His strength and through His grace what was done. And one of the most painful and futile things that I can ever try to do is to forgive in my own strength. Uh, Gary and Mona Shriver. Equally deceptive and harmful is a commitment to making sure your spouse now becomes the person you always wanted him or her to be. Trusting Him again was not just about Him becoming trustworthy. It was also about me recognizing there would be times my trust would be required. Again, when we do the first part there where it says making sure your spouse now becomes the person you always wanted them to be, that's another version of the principle of least interest trap. You failed, I win. You sinned, I get what I want. This is extreme spouse makeover. Let's go. Uh, that, uh, that, is, that is not where we are. But she brings up that scary issue of trust. And I will admit, as you can tell, I read lots of books in this subject. And one of the things that was painfully absent from any of the literature that I was able to find is how does trust develop? Because so often we view trust as all or Nothing. Either I trust you and I completely left you hurt me, or I don't. And the marriage gets caught in that. To where I give myself to you and I feel like it's more than I'm ready for, and then I pull back because that was too much. And so I have made an attempt to create a progression of trust. Um, What I would encourage you is to think in terms of three points. Where were we before any of this happened? Where has been our lowest point, And where are we now? Now, in terms of how trust develops, uh, at the beginning, it may require third-party mediation. I will only give you vicarious trust. If we can come to a counselor, and the counselor understands what you're saying and doesn't think you're lying, the counselor can understand what I'm saying and doesn't think you're lying, I will trust the counselor. I will not trust you. And when we get started, vicarious trust may be where we start building from. And then we go to listening, but with a high degree of validation. I want you to prove everything you say. This feels very tedious. Then we get to where we're listening with less validation needed. The rate of questioning, both in my head and out of my mouth, decreases. Then we get to the spot where we are, I will rely on you functionally. We are basically living as roommates. Basic finances, schedules, picking up the kids, maybe if I trust you that much. But it's often at this point of living at roommates where spouses get very despairing and they think if this is what it's going to be for the rest of the marriage, then I might as well go ahead and divorce. I've got the out. I want to take it. But where do we go from there? Shared facts. I begin to give you myself in pieces. And the safest pieces... I can give you are facts. Just the raw data of my day. Instead of saying, you've got no right to know that. Just the fact that you would be concerned and want to know, I will begin to give you the facts. And then I may begin to share with you beliefs. What I like, what I dislike, what I agree with, what I disagree with, what I want. Again, this is is kind of a big step because you've shown a disregard with those things. You have probably argued with me and hurt me many ways in these kinds of things. And so when I share these kinds of beliefs with you, it recognize I'm giving you something precious. A step beyond that, I share with you my feelings. Now for a long time, with my feelings, I may have just thrust them at you. Uh, I may have shown them to you. But now, I begin to share my feelings with you. They're not mine, and I've—they become a bit more of a mutual thing that I will let you participate in a little bit. After sharing feelings, I begin to rely on you emotionally. Sharing is now a point of relief instead of anxiety. Initially, when I was sharing beliefs and sharing feelings, that was very stressful. At this point, I'm beginning to experience some of that sense of relief that comes along with it again. After that, I allow you to, I allow you to care for me. Your affection uh, no longer feels unclean. I don't, I'm not guessing at what your agenda is. And then finally... I feel more relaxed and safer with you than apart from you. And at this point, we've reached what God intended marriage to be. Now, one of the things that you're probably asking for that I intentionally left out of that progression was a timeline. Where's the one-month marker? Where's the three-month marker? Where's the six-month marker? Please don't tell me it's more than six months. Um, There is intentionally no timeline. Because my experience has been the most efficient way to get where we're going is to know what's next, not to put it on a stopwatch. If I know what is next and we are working on that, then that is the most effective way to get where we want to go. If, on the other hand, I think I'm supposed to be there at six months and we are two weeks in and that means I'm supposed to be one twelfth of the way and if it's only going to get 12% better than this, I don't want any of that. And the early stages just get so restricted based upon the mental math games that we begin to play in our head. And so for that reason, there is no timeline. Uh, If your spouse is faithfully working through the false love materials, I would say look at what is next. Where are you most comfortable You and your spouse recognize what is next on that progression of trust. Let your attention be there. Begin to feel relaxed and comfortable and celebrate the progress that you see at each of those stages. Uh, Harry Schomburg. He says, Whatever your self-protective style of relating, it probably seems to work for you. But beneath the pretense, you've made a commitment that you will never be hurt again if you can help it. This commitment conflicts with the commitment to love. And this is where I would draw a contrast between where we started and self-protective. Preparing is not the same thing as self-protective. Self-protective is bracing. Preparing is recognizing that I'm on a journey. Um, Yet, any time we organize our life around a fear, which is when we have a self-protective style of relating... We are organizing our life around a fear. Any time we organize our life around a fear, other than the fear of Lord, other than the fear of the Lord, it will be destructive to us. And the reason for that is this: what we fear most, we will look for first. And so, if I have a fear of snakes, I'm a country boy. I'm used to walking in the woods. If I have a fear of snakes, every crooked stick is what? It's a snake. If If I have this self-protective, I know what's going to hurt me, and that is what is at the front of my mind, what am I going to hear in every comment, in every silence, in every compliment? Because what I fear most, I will look for and see first, even when it's not there. And this is where we begin to grasp what Proverbs would mean when it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is the only thing that can give me eyes to see And ears to hear what is really going on around me. Uh, Robert Jones again. Uh, He says The next step, if and when both are ready, is to recommit yourselves to the marriage, the marriage covenant, and to explore the marital problems that existed prior to the infidelity. The affair did not arise in a vacuum. Good marriages seldom beget adultery. And I would say now we are beginning the transition between personal and marital restoration and marital enrichment. Uh, This is where I would advise a couple to go back to that evaluation from chapter 2. And we look at it and begin to ask, what things do we need to begin to approve upon? Again, just because you're at this point in our verbal presentation does not mean you're here in the journey that we're laying out. But as we look at those things that we find in that evaluation from chapter 2, I would encourage you to keep two things in mind. For the one who has been unfaithful, I would encourage you to think about those motives that you looked at in chapter 3 of false love. And don't let those things become what drive you towards a healthy marriage. They'll distort it. And for the one who has been offended, to be careful of those suffering themes that you got in chapter 4. Because those are the kind of themes that would creep in and begin to take all of this enrichment activity and begin to distort it into something less than the blessing that God wants it to be. And it's at this stage that the couple has to begin to communicate about the marriage as a whole. Uh, And as you do that, the way that I would say it is you're starting to talk about old problems in a new context after a prolonged strain. Most of what we're talking about are old problems. Because I'm still me and you're still you. We're still the same people. We're changed and unchanged. But that unchanged part of us Our personality, our temperament, uh, the things that we enjoy, the habits that we have. Okay, those are the old things that are going to come back. We're in a new context. Hopefully, we have a positive momentum of openness and honesty that we probably haven't had for a very long time. We see where we are in terms of trust much clearer than at any point prior because we actually have a category for that and we know what we're growing towards and we actually have some steps to get there instead of all or nothing. And we also have a new starting point. And that's what I mean by after a prolonged strain. There are certain habits uh, that we picked up, some good, some bad, as we got to this point in our journey. And we need to take those things into consideration as we do this evaluation as well. And so Mark Lassar gives an exercise that I thought was just very helpful. He said each of a couple uh, should should go through four questions. One, how do you define an ideal couple? Uh, and again, these are in your notebook. You don't have to write them down. How do you define an ideal couple? Uh, two, which ideals that you described are realistic? Because a big part of sexual sin is it begins to create this fantasy, fantasy unrealisticness about marriage. And so even at this stage, we want to be filtering our expectations. Are there expectations that we have that are unrealistic? Which ideals uh, that you describe can be restored? Which of these things are already being restored and we should be encouraged by? And which of these ideals can be, uh, can be um, restored with help? You know, what things do we need to reach out uh, to counseling and marriage enrichment events and do those kinds of things because we were never meant to do marriage alone. It's one of the biggest misnomers of our day. When I see couples who get into radically bad situations, they are usually very isolated couples. That if they were more open with one another in the course of their marriage, talking about the struggles in the context of something like a small group, most of the problems at their budding phases could have been nipped and would have been beautiful markers of God's grace in their life instead of these cracks and fractures that become scars. And so at this stage, let us not think that we are going to improve our marriage in any different or better way. Now this communication, sometimes it will go well and sometimes it will not. Um, Doug Rosenau. Uh, talks about sometimes when it goes well. It says the one involved in the affair is relieved to be beyond the secrecy or guilt, uh, and is discovering some of the reasons for the original attraction to their partner. Again, this you, this in terms of that refinding what attracted them to their partner, it usually is about step six or seven when that begins to happen. When it comes to just that sense of relief, that usually happens earlier. But when I'm holding secrets from you that I knew you would be upset with, and I constantly feel like you're judging me, or at least you would if, I knew, if you knew the truth, I'm not going to feel like you love me. And so until I begin to get honest, and we go through some time that we get through the pain of what that honesty entails... I'm not going to rediscover the reasons that I loved you in the first place. Now the one cheated on after dealing with anger and betrayal is excited not to have lost the mate. The problem with the honeymoon is that it can sweep issues under the rug which can later come back to haunt the marriage. And I would simply say here, as that happens, enjoy the honeymoon moments. Enjoy those moments where we are closer than we ever were before and we are celebrating a unity and an honesty and a vulnerability that we didn't have when there was lies and sins between us. But also recognize at this point we have not completed our journey. And so those moments of honeymoon, embrace them, enjoy them. But it is easy at that point to say we're done here. This is all we wanted. This is more than we could imagine. We'll stop. Uh, for your sake, I would encourage you not to do that. But what about when communication doesn't go well? Gary and Mona. Uh, here she is talking to someone who was the uh, faithful spouse who is upset. She says, if you just let loose on your spouse, this is a good time to call <clears throat> good time for you to call a break. And when you've cooled down, go to your spouse and apologize. Apologize for whatever you said that did not help the healing process. Um, We don't believe you need to apologize for the feelings. Uh, Those are real and true. Again, here I would pause and say they are real. If they are rooted in the suffering story, they are not necessarily true. And so it... On the one side, they are very real and they represent where we are. When we embrace them as totally true, that's where that suffering story may begin to get in and mar where we're going. Um, but But you do need to say that you're sorry for the way that you handled them at the particular moment. The other aspect of transparent honesty Mona had to accept was the fact that in the end, she would have to entrust Gary to God and place herself in a position of vulnerability. Uh, And it's at this point that we, through much of this seminar, we have been approaching the offended spouse through the paradigm of suffering. And we have been saying this is suffering, this is traumatic, um, and it's at this stage as we begin to move towards marital enrichment that we begin to see both of us as sinner and sufferer where we both begin to engage in more of a sense of repentance and restoration, uh, that we have resolved that primary forefront issue, and we don't need the labels of offended and offending to be the distinguishing marks between who we are. And part of being balanced in that sin-suffering distinction uh, is how we begin to see that happen. It... Um, you know, the emotions that we feel right here, um, it is very easy in the midst of a trauma to begin to view our emotions as if they're neutral, as if they just are, as if they don't reveal things about us. And uh, for a while, emotions were traumatic responses. And it's at this stage where we begin to go back and say, our emotions are revealing me now. And I have to begin to take responsibility for those emotions. And we say, how do we do that? Where does emotional control come from when this still hurts so bad? And it's in those moments where I think her final phrase is there of she would have to entrust Gary and herself to God. Emotional control... Doesn't come from something that I do as if I grab into my emotional heart chamber and just hold it and don't let it move. Emotional control is when I realize there is someone who cares for me who is guiding the situation. In the same way that children who have parents who exhibit strength and stability have a greater sense of emotional control because they process their emotions in a context of protection. Hopefully at this point with what we've gone through with the gospel story and the strides we've made to understand who God is and His role as faithful and powerful and pioneer, we can begin to entrust ourselves to Him in that way like a child of God is called to do to gain control uh, over even these intense emotions.